0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast
1: to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Kyle McCormick. He's the owner of Blueberry Pharmacy and a graduate from the University of Pittsburgh, so go Panthers. And welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kyle.
0: Yeah, thank you, Eric, and uh, yeah, hell to pit, so thanks for having me on and to talk
1: with you. Yeah, so we kind of want to talk a little bit about drug pricing today. It's uh, something we hear a lot about, especially in the political realm of pharmacy, because you kind of have a different model for it. So we're going to dive into that here. But first, we're going to talk about one drug in specific. And actually, there's a couple drugs that fit this mold. So we might kind of hop back and forth a little bit. But one trend that we're kind of seeing in general is when it comes to pricing of some of these drugs and the models they use, whether it be NADAC or the AWP price and things like that, and the spread pricing games that are kind of played by PBMs and in some cases by pharmacies as well. So uh, Truvada is a drug that's obviously used for HIV. It now has generics out and can be bought for as low as about $19 if I've seen correctly from some places. And the list price on it in many, many situations is still around at or over $2,000. So can you kind of give what you've seen with some of this, with the spread pricing and some of the games that PBMs and even the generic manufacturers or other pharmacies have played with this type of stuff?
0: Yeah, I think it happens pretty regularly in terms of the, the difference between anything from usual and customary to AWP to NADAC to all the different acronyms that we have, WAC, and versus the actual acquisition costs. And so that's, we'll get into my model a little bit more, but everything that we do is based on acquisition costs, because I think it's the fairest way to actually price medication is actually tie it to the price that the pharmacy pays. In this example alone, we just bought Truvada last week for $13.99 versus a lot of list price prices at major pharmacies and, and all pharmacies for the most part that are in the AWP usual and customary based pricing schema typically ranges around $2,000 for a 30-day supply. So um, granted, that's not saying that they get reimbursed that full amount or that, you know, without coupons patients or with coupons patients actually pay that full amount. But regardless, it's kind of a a messed up system, uh, and that's why we wanted to escape from that model.
1: Yeah, and it's almost kind of like a perverse incentive because as a pharmacist, there's so many claims that we're seeing more and more of where we're getting reimbursed either directly at our cost and our cost of the drug not necessarily our cost of labor below our cost of the drug or just pennies over it so when we see these drugs it's ones that a lot of pharmacies i don't want to say want to promote but that they have no problem kind of taking this on because they're actually it's one of the few things they're actually making a good amount of money on and when it comes to the kind of the way the pbms are handling this you almost don't feel sorry because this is again one of the only ways we can make profit so when we're kind of diving into stuff like this. What have you seen with this and like, what kind of made you change the whole way that you're doing this with a straight acquisition cost as opposed to playing AWC or these spread pricing games, if you will?
0: So sure, yes, uh, pr- prior to working in a costless model, I worked for several independents and I'm just seeing it regularly. I think the one that sticks out most to me is a patient, Medicare patient who they co-pay on a month's supply of Solifenacin. This is somewhat early on to Solifenacin. Becoming generic, but I think it's still. I mean, I talked to a patient the other day whose copay is still pretty high. But it, for a month's supply, it was coming back at $300. And in that moment, I didn't really know the cost, our cost for the pharmacy. But when I went to order it that night, sold it, it was only five bucks for a <laughs> bottle of 30. And so it just really hit me you know, this is a, a patient, you know, no patient should have to pay this much, but just being in the patient's. Choose a patient that's 80 years old, you know, dipping into their retirement for this medication on a monthly basis, and it's $300 a month. And the the fact that it only cost the pharmacy $5, it just was kind of eye opening. And I realized, you know, pharmacists face, pharmacy owners face these kind of perverse incentives to not. I mean, a $300 reimbursement on a $500. That means $250 profit. And whenever you lose money on approximately 80 percent of prescriptions that are filled you know and i lose money i mean not reimbursed above the cost of the expense so the nationwide cost of the expense being i think somewhere around ten dollars and 49 cents uh, per prescription so not being reimbursed that amount on a prescription so whether it's a Lisinopril that costs 42 cents and you're being reimbursed 52 cents so it doesn't even cost literally like it doesn't even reimburse for the cost of like the drug plus the label you're definitely not making money on on those. so Whenever you're, you're, you're losing money on 80% of the prescriptions you fill, you have to kind of chase or not like, turn a blind eye to these ones that are just ridiculously reimbursed. And it, it, it kind of opened my eyes to say, there's got to be a different way of doing pharmacy. And uh, that's kind of how the, the blueberry model came to be.
1: Yeah. And I, I really like that because it's very transparent with how you're pricing everything. And Kind of, again, going back to just an example here with the Truvada sense, and the reason I like to focus on this for the listeners is, so Truvada is an HIV medication I've talked about before in the podcast with it going generic, and the reason it matters is because if you're an HIV patient who needs this, you need this so that you can keep your viral load suppressed and you can live a normal or as close to normal life as possible. And we've seen some agreements with the Trump administration where they had an agreement to give out so many free doses, but by the end of the contract, it was switching it to Discovy, so that that person, the drug manufacturer who originally made Truvada, can have another cash cow, if you will. Because as we see, the cost to make this medication from uh, Truvada is under $20 per bottle. But if they can switch you to something that's almost identical and charge 2,000 for it, they have another uh, goose that will lay the golden egg for them, if you will. And that's kind of what the opposite is now with Truvada being generic, where it's the golden egg for the pharmacist or for the pharmacies or for the PBMs to kind of cut reimbursement. And then they can, with spread pricing, charge the actual insurer more and make a ton of money off that as well. Again, can you think of any other drugs that you've seen? You said sulfenacin. I mentioned Truvada. Is there any other drugs you've heard or seen this on? I
0: think it's typically the drugs that go generic. I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's around the time that they go generic. So obviously, Truvada right now, Telafenacin. I mean, that's one that's still actually. I had a patient who who came to Blueberry because their Medicare copay on a three-month supply was like $150. But I, I, so I think it's like the somewhat newer medications that uh, have you know a generic introduced. Now that's not always the case. I can think I can't think of the examples, but I know that some back when we were in the I was in the old model, it'd be like we'd expect a, a reimbursement decently large and, you know, for a brand a brand that was going generic and then all of a sudden we would see a negative reimbursement or something like that and be shocked. That actually still, I do think of the examples that that occurs in and it's the non-oral medications. And typically that incentivizes a pharmacy to switch to a brand name medication that the insurance gets a rebate back onto. And so, like, if if an insurance reimburses a generic advir under the cost of the generic Advair but they will still cover the brand and the incentive is there to talk to the doctor, or see if brand necessary is a you know, possibility. And so just all the you know, sketchy tactics that occur are kind of unfortunate.
1: Yeah. And and we see insurances do this all the time where they have a preferred generics or preferred brand. And even though there's a cheaper option, they're still charging for the the insurance for the more expensive one because they're getting rebates. And I know we see this with Adderall a lot for like why, at least in Ohio, where the the Medicaid plan prefers the brand name, even though there's a less expensive generic that is available because of kickbacks they get and things like that. So you know, to be fair to you, you have kind of gotten out of this model. So that's probably why you don't see this as much as someone like I do. And we're going to kind of move the discussion here on to Blueberry Pharmacy, which you own, has a totally different model. And you've been highlighted in a few different places. Can you discuss kind of what made you start Blueberry Pharmacy and how your pricing model works?
0: So what made me start it? I've always been interested in independent pharmacy. I mean, all my rotations were independent for the most part. And all my job experience as independent. I just love the feel of that. So, and also look kind of intrigued by business as well. So, I always wanted to own my own independent pharmacy, but having spent almost six years in practice at an independent, seeing the trends, you know, even before that of reimbursement falling year over year for 10 plus years and the same conversations about DIR fees going up or new fees such as. So the different trends, whether it be uh, decreasing reimbursement year over year for 10 plus years or GER, DIR, the per- reverse incentives of, of what was supposed to be clinical services where star measures, are, you know, instead of having a, a carrot, it was give it a stick with, you know, we'll just make you pay less DIR instead of, you know, actually giving a reward for uh, better performance. And so all those trends just drove me to think, well, traditional independent ownership is not really there's not really a future in how it's being performed currently. And so I, I, my thought was, well, you know, there's no trend towards that necessarily improving, so why not just try something different? And it seems like if I can find enough patients that are being harmed by this model, a patient that has a $300 solo venison copay whenever the drug only costs $5, surely I could sell them for $15 and they'd be happy. So if I can find enough of those people, or convince enough people that the current model is broken and needs to be fixed, and here's a solution for that, that there might just be a business model out of that, and that's kind of where Blueberry Pharmacy came to be in our costless model. So the way it works is we charge patients our acquisition cost plus a dispensing fee. So it's really truly cost plus a dispensing fee. So in the cost, we factor in things in a tr- truly transparent format. We Factor in the cost of the label, the vial, the lid, the electronic prescription, and then uh, a five percent markup on the drug itself on, on our acquisition cost, and then a dispensing fee. The dispensing fee varies. We have a membership that lowers the dispensing fee. Uh, our non-member dispensing fee is ten dollars. Our member dispensing fee is three dollars. And the rationale behind that is a patient that might be on, or a patient that's on more than one medication. There's a strong argument to be made for a kind of a med management fee. So what I like to think of as the membership fee as like a med management fee, a lot of patients right right now think of it as just a way to make their drugs cost lower. But the theory behind it is a $10 dispensing fee for each drug, a patient might be on five, six, seven medications. The additional time and knowledge it takes to check and verify and and, ensure safety on each medication isn't it's not like each of them takes 10 additional minutes. It's really, you know, especially once, if it, new medication, you could argue that there's that yeah. uh, incremental cost. But on a, on a recurring basis, especially if they're synced, it's not like it takes that much more time to check those medications. So the argument was there, well, it really shouldn't have that same cost fencing fee for each of the medications. But what if there's this med management fee? The rationale behind, you know, justifying our time for, coupon navigation or just counseling or you know, reviewing a medication list for safety, efficacy, all of that. So it's, it's truly our med management fee um, that is branded to the patient as a, a membership fee.
1: So the, just to be clear to the listeners here, you don't take insurance at your pharmacy at all, correct?
0: Yeah, no insurance. Yep. No no way to actually even bill it. So like that's the other thing that's like interesting to explain to patients is we can't even use it. Like even if a patient wanted... Like we help patients find coupon cards for brand name medications and patients are like, well, can I just use that here? Well, that gets transmitted over the same claim infrastructure as an insurance transmitted claim does. It it uses a bin, a PCN, all of that, as all the listeners know. It's like there's literally no way for me to transmit that claim. And so even though we help patients find those coupons and we even actually call the other pharmacy where they want to get it filled at and make sure the coupons get applied correctly and all of that. So even though the, the patient kind of expects us to, we we kind of educate them on why we don't use those coupons or, or operate in such a, a system.
1: Yeah, so I think that's a total game changer. And I've heard other advocates for price to form kind of refer to what you're talking about because that way there's always guaranteed to be you always going to be it covered for your cost like it's the cost of everything plus whatever percent markup or addition like you said you have 5% plus the dispensing fee so that that way you always have your costs met plus your professional duties met and then it kind of just gets rid of all this muddy water of you know this generics preferred over this generic over this one or this brand over this one and the formulary games they play which in the middle of the year they'll switch from I don't know, Dulera to Advair or to SimbaCort and all these other things. It kind of really just clarifies all that. And is your pricing generally just based off your acquisition? You said, or was it based off Nadac? Which one was that again? Yeah,
0: no, yeah. I'll get into that in a second. But just what, what you had just said kind of made me think of something else. I like to think of it as it like truly aligns all incentives. So even and it's very rational. So not that like we always think rationally and in in economics or healthcare, but yeah, um, for sure we don't (laughs) really like rational. Uh, For example, if a patient has a manufacturer preference in our current model, not all drug manufacturers cost the same. So there is little incentive for a pharmacy to actually, you know, want to honor that preference. Whereas in my model, sure, if you have a preference, that's fine. You just pay more because the drug actually costs more things like, like you said, Therapeutic decisions aren't no longer made by which one reimburses better or which is on formulary. It's no, if if this is the better drug, uh, or if this is the drug that the doctor prefers or the patient prefers or you know, safest for the patient, or whatever works best for the patient, it's covered. (laughs) It's 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 covered. It's covered at the same pricing algorithm. Now, it might cost more, it might cost less. Uh, in fact, we always work with patients to try to find what is most cost effective for them. So I, an example that comes up that just happened recently is a patient who was prescribed phenofibrate 50 milligram capsule. And the uh, patient doesn't have insurance, uh, but a traditional model, I would be curious if that is covered because the, the product is, I, I would be very curious if that would have been covered on most plans because it shouldn't be. I hope it wouldn't be, but it's a, it's a $200 acquisition cost drug and whenever there's phenofibrate, 54 milligram cap, the tablet. And so I quickly called the, the doctor and I said, hey, can we switch it from this $200 medication that's four milligrams more and is in a, cap- a tablet form instead of a capsule form? Can we just change it? Because it goes from 200, mill- $200 to $4.50 acquisition cost. Wow. And, and I think about it, I thought about that for many reasons. One being, I was like, well, in a traditional insurance-based model, it, it's a generic it's possibly covered, you know, maybe it's not tier one, but it's possibly covered. And so maybe the patient copay would be reasonable, but maybe the employer would be charged that $200 or whatnot. It got me thinking like, that's crazy. (laughs) That that would be covered whenever, and that the patient might not even know that another drug exists. And if the patient copay comes back at zero, a pharmacist is not incentivized to even think about, well, is this even a rational drug to be on whenever this other drug exists? Yeah. Um, and then I also thought about like the, the opportunities to make an ROI uh, argument for MTM, something like MTM. One of my criticisms of MTMs and the ROI, ROI that um, is often calculated or, or put out there is more of a theoretical uh, actuarial analysis of, of a pharmacist intervention. So did we it, prevent a hospitalization? Did we prevent you know, a, any number of things? And I don't think it's often looked at as, you know, how much can we actually save the patient in this visit, in this exact moment, yeah. or how much can we actually save the plan or the, the not the plan, who cares about that? How much yeah. can we save the, the government or the, the other payers, the employer in this moment? And I think about that example where that change necessarily wouldn't have necessarily changed or even come up in a typical MTM encounter, possibly. But in that moment, it could have saved the patient $200 a month. Or a pair of hundred dollars a month.
1: Yeah, and you know one of the things that I think about too with this is I and I had this happen recently, and it was like the muscle relaxers. So like you said, like tizanidine capsules are super expensive compared to their generic tablets. And it's a super simple, mm-hmm. simple, simple stupid thing of like you can just call, get a switch, and you save them like hundreds of dollars. But I've had some insurances where they won't cover Flexeril or Tazanidine or Baclofen. And they prefer the other one. And the whole time, you're only arguing over a couple pennies. It's basically arguing over what they get a better rebate on. And it's like, does this really even matter? Like, you know, if we just look at the acquisition cost of this, look at what the doctor wrote it for, why they thought this won't work better. You know, we're really arguing over nothing, and they might not even get therapeutically what's the best thing for them because the cost is – negligible at best so
0: right. well and i think that that point right there gets to the, the the like overarching mission and kind of like long-term goal of blueberry model which actually wasn't even in the, the works or thought of whenever we first launched blueberry pharmacy but kind of the idea of like why is insurance involved with generics at all um and i've had this come up really hit home whenever i was listening to a podcast with robert popovian on it and, and he, he stated you know we don't pay for insurance for it. We don't submit a claim to our to our car insurance for our gasoline. And so, if you think about drugs and healthcare, generic drugs are basically a gasoline equivalent. You know, mm. these are medications that literally almost every medication in my pharmacy, since they're all generics, they're all common generics. Almost every drug in my pharmacy is less than it costs. The acquisition cost is less than a bottle of Tylenol, which is kind of crazy to think about. But yeah prescription medications, acquisition costs, Like, if you look at on average, I would argue that the generic medications, their acquisition costs are probably lower on average than over-the-counter medications are, which is kind of like mind blowing to think about.
1: Yeah, Um, that really is. But like,
0: they are, they are. It's like why, you know, we don't expect insurance to cover over-the-counters necessarily, but so why do we expect for that to be covered through insurance, adding insurance onto something that's so inexpensive like paying insurance premium, deductible, all that stuff for a penny product or a five cent product or ten cent product or you know, max a dollar a day product doesn't really make sense to do. And so that's kind of like the, the reshaping of, of the model in that, you know, is there a future of pharmacy where brands might be more like specialty, where there's you know, narrow networks, more mail order of them, because it all it makes a lot more sense to warehouse a brand product. And ship those out direct to the patients that need them or specialty products, because you don't want to have those on the shelves if you only have one patient on them. And probably most community pharmacies might only have a couple of patients on the different brands that exist versus generics where you can warehouse a whole you know, need of a community for less than $8,000 and then just uh, charge fair, transparent prices to community members. To me, that makes a lot more sense and not getting insurance involved at all.
1: Yeah. And for the listeners, you put out some great infographics with Blueberry Pharmacy and kind of how this works. So I'm going to try and link those in the show notes as well, just so you guys can actually have a visual representation of this, because we talk about this on obviously an audio podcast and it probably makes sense to a lot of people, but for those who don't, or those who just want to see it in a simple format, I'm going to try and link that in the show notes to help really show, like sell home what this is that, and how, uh, Kyle is, pricing his prescriptions at Blueberry Pharmacy. So I know recently you guys just hit a big milestone. You've been open for one year now. How's it going? Are you profitable? Is this looking sustainable?
0: You know, time will tell on the profitability standpoint. I mean, we're basically on break even at the moment, which I'm pretty excited about opening up a pharmacy the day before our state shut down for COVID. Yeah. And um, I was navigating a time when patients weren't really looking for a new pharmacy. They were just looking to get their med delivered to them and not have to come out of their house and not really having like new medications added cause not going to doctors and all that stuff. So like very odd time to be, you know, opening anything, let alone a pharmacy. So I think, you know, time will tell on that question, but I am kind of excited by the different metrics that, you know, we have to look at and I think overall, I mean, the monetary metrics aside, I think that the excitement piece and, and kind of just the reactions that we get are very optimistic for the future and just today i had a patient who's a decently long-time member now of the pharmacy and he's like it's easy i just tell my doctor i just ask my doctor whatever they you know want to prescribe something i say is it generic if they say yes i'll say send it to blueberry is it branded? send it to buy others to the other pharmacy <laughs> this is a patient with insurance who who came to me because of the doctrine that he was being charged twenty dollars a month is the Jackson. And uh, as a member, he now gets his, the Jackson 90-day supply for, I think, less than like $15. And so I think he's just really bought into the ethos and the uh, kind of rationale behind the pharmacy. So I think the reaction standpoint, I, you know, I'm very optimistic. And I think that the number side is also becoming optimistic the more that we gather traction and kind of educate the community. And, uh, but also the reaction from pharmacists as well kind of gets me excited for this model because the parts that I didn't really hit on—we talked a lot about product side—but the other big piece that I get excited about is the service side of things. I think whenever the payer is the patient, or at least you know adjacent to the patient, so like employer, or uh, in our case, we have some doctors paying for their memberships for patients. Whenever the payer is so close, I think that they value the pharmacist service more, or they have the opportunity to more directly see the the value that the service the pharmacist provides. And um I'll kind of walk you through a patient early on who still is probably like the most memorable patient encounter. Husband and wife wife came to me, was referred to me by a physician for the cost of her actually I guess husband and wife were referred to me for the cost of their generic. So we quickly got to that squared away, lowered the cost overall by a thousand dollars a year. And then a couple like a, a month later, well, mentioned. Well, is there anything you can do about my insulin? It's brand name insulin. It's $100 a month. And I said, Well, we're not going to be filling it here, but certainly there's some things we can do. So I got on a three-way call with her insurance company and found out, you know, the different tiers of the insulins, and then looked at the different coupons available and figured out a way. Well, we can get your basal down to $5 a month. So she was just ecstatic. And a couple months into that, nurse calls me and says, you know, we want to start a GLP-1. Is there which one should we start? So. But that was really cool is like the prescriber is asking me, here's the situation, tell me what to prescribe and what we really want with provider status or or even just from a service MTM standpoint is just having a pr- provider ask us versus us sending a fax and suggesting something and hoping somebody reads our fax. <laughs> uh, so I got excited there. So I did the same thing, got on a three-way call with the insurance, got out there, they're all brands, are all in the same tier, and then just looked at coupons, suggested olympic and she got a three-month supply for 25 and then a couple months later so i was like why would you wait so long but the husband came to me and he said you know i am stage 3 copd i haven't been taking my brio because it's too expensive what should i do so basically did the same thing got on through a call with the insurance suggested the to the provider to, to prescribe trilogy and then two days after being on the new medication that ended up being free to him he called me and said kyle you know i can breathe again and he since reduced his his nebulizer refills that it gets through me pretty significantly. So it took that as a really you know eye opening experience in that patients were first referred to me for like the cost of their generics and the dispensing side of things. But actually what probably made them longer term patients is the fact that it was service was provided to like all that time was justified through their cost of their membership. So like they were paying me to be members of my pharmacy and I was not filling a single prescription yeah you know and with those brands I was calling the, the the pharmacy making sure the coupons adjudicated providing that information or talking to the doctors but I didn't have to touch that prescription and, and from a pharmacist's perspective those are prescriptions that we loo- usually lose money on mm-hmm. um, and so I think it kind of reframes the idea of like well you know should we should we just manage the pay like as pharmacists community pharmacists we could just be the managers of that patient's medications and 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 leave the, the brands and specialty to mail order. That's fine. We still care for that patient and we can still do so because we have the majority of them nine out of 10 prescriptions filled are generic. So we still have the majority of their prescriptions, so We still are kind of the, the gatekeeper of their medication list. But I, I think that, you know, moving away from needing to fill every single prescription or, or you know, worry about a patient transferring a brand to mail order, um, not a big worry be a worry.
1: So what I took home from that is you put the care back in healthcare, which is huge because we've seen so many other things come into healthcare with numbers and metrics and what have you that care often get in health also often get left out of it, and I think that's that's huge, especially since there are so many that are generic, and I think that's a really noble cause. And like you said, you because you were you had a small financial benefit from them. You know, paying to be members and how much you make off of their generic medications, you're able to better manage that and really take care of them and, and build that relationship, which is what you sh- really should have with somebody who's taking care of any aspect of your healthcare. So, kind of the next step here is if I could give you a magic wand to fix an issue with drug pricing or to fix drug pricing in general, what would you do?
0: Uh, I think since I deal regularly in generics, I think that the easiest. One of the easiest things probably from my perspective would just be essentially to remove generics from the marketplace, make their own marketplace, where in a transparent world and competing, the problem is, and I think tied to that would also be a lot of antitrust legislation around vertical monopolies and healthcare, and for that matter, throughout multiple industries. But I think that the problem is that right now, without a transparent pricing model like if you if you equip a patient with you know costs and obviously we don't want like, to you know compete to the bottom dollar i mean the nice thing about whenever we're transparently competing on costs essentially for these drugs even if walmart can buy it at a penny and i buy it at two pennies our overall still a patient might come to me because our dispensing fees i'll dispense a fee you know i might my dispensing fee might be 10 walmart might move it to eight or something but a patient sees the value of coming to me if I, if I, you know, help them with coupon navigation or something like that, or, or just looking out for their health overall. So I think that whenever you're transparently competing on cost, your service becomes more important. And so I think that in a marketplace where patients aren't driven to a mail order because their generics are zero dollars if they go to mail order versus five dollars each if they go and they're on ten different medications, so. No brainer. If you're going to if you're going to pay zero dollars in a mail order versus fifty dollars a month at a at a community pharmacy, so I think one of the big things would be you know just completely separating those marketplaces, which that wouldn't necessarily be like legislative. It's just a matter of employers and different payers realizing that there's no role for PBMs in that in that marketplace. Um, so that would be one thing. Vertical monopolies, I think, would be another thing. I think to some extent the realigning of incentives would be really important. Even the examples of where, you know, patient care was supposed to provide for better reimbursement, but instead it was used as a tactic to, you know, whether it's CMR um, completion rate or star measures, uh, where it was tied to you know, DIR fees. So it was more of like a stick where you you by providing better care you just you get less penalized versus actually like incentivized to do it. I think that the mindset is completely different. If you're in a mindset of growth, you're more likely to you know, think bigger. Uh, whereas if you're in a mindset of like um, penalty, you're less incentivized. So I think that there's a lot that can be done in healthcare to better incentivize. And I think a lot of it also has to do with just better alignment of payer structure. So like you know, holding accountability to PBMs and transparency with PBMs and different insurers for that matter uh, in healthcare systems, I think some of the recent stats that have come out about nonprofit hospitals versus for-profit hospitals is pretty alarming. So uh, there's a lot of transparency could go a long way in healthcare.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that's, you know, anything that isn't transparent these days, I automatically question. And healthcare is probably one of the least transparent things there is. Try and call a doctor's office and get a price for something. Try and call a pharmacy and, you know, get some of these prices on it. Ask your insurance kind of who's getting paid when – you know, the, the bills come due, if you will. And it's not easy no matter where, who you call. So I think that's a, I think that's a great thing that we, you know, we've been seeing this push for years, but I think legislators don't fully understand it, which is part of the problem. And part of the reason why we haven't seen traction on it is because they don't know how to tackle that beast. Maybe this podcast could be, someone can learn from it and take it from there, but Hey, maybe just putting this on the ethos for other places, people can kind of can kind of learn from it and spread it on or share it with people to help show how these different perverse incentives exist in a marketplace like pharmacy or in healthcare in general. So I think that I think that's awesome that you do that, and that's why I really like your model there, Blueberry Pharmacy, because it's so it's it's not just outside the box. It's like no, let's burn that box down and make a new box <laughs> like for how it basically works.
0: Yeah. No, I think uh, this one example that like really kept me going this past month is. A couple of months ago, I had helped a patient who's uninsured and, and worked directly with the doctor to get the patient, patient. The doctor called and said, we have this patient. We need insulin for her new type 1 diabetic. So I, I looked at the options and uh, found out that um, basiglar would be a good starting point. And uh, you know, called the, the doctor, who recommended it. She sent it in. It came back at a higher copay than the coupon, $35 a month. And I figured, well, it's probably because of the way the day supply calculated out. And I said, well, it's a new started diabetic. There's no way that we know which units she's going to be using. So yeah. I said, you know, the better way to write this prescription would be, you know, start at 15 units a day, but titrate to a basil, goal basil of whatever you want it to be, or go, um fasting of whatever you want it to be. And then put in max 50 units a day, um, titrate to the goal. And then it, all of a sudden it, this, that same five pack of insulin went from a hundred plus dollars for that five pack to 35 it's like the pricing structures are so broken that somehow they supply matters in, in quantity like nowhere else in retail like we call ourselves we're retail like <laughs> uh, but nowhere else in any other retail sector like it's not like an iphone you don't price an iphone based on how often it's used or whatever it's like an iphone it weighs this much it's this big it's this cost and same thing with insulin it's like well it's if you're giving five, five pens, it's, it's the cost. is whatever it should be. So like, it's kind of crazy, but um, so anyhow, we got it changed. The doctor changed the prescription, called the the pharmacy back, got the coupon re-adjudicated, came to $35. Patient was ecstatic. Doctor was ecstatic. And uh, I didn't really think anything more of it. But then just like two weeks ago, a pharmacist, or didn't know who this person was, but came in and said, I don't know if you remember me, but, and this is like probably 30 minutes away, the pharmacy that it. That call happened with pharmacist. She's like, I'm the pharmacist who I spoke to about this patient. She just said, I wanted to just come and check you out and just say thank you because in a busy retail environment, I don't have the time to think. of, I do not I don't I don't have the time to necessarily provide that level of care. You know, it's like the goal to, but just don't have the time to do it. And so I just kind of wanted to learn more and just thank you. And I was, like, it's really meant a lot to me. I was like, just a, as, as a you know, just. To go out of your way to come and say that is just kind of you know, eye-opening in that I think we all want to provide care, but I just don't think that we're able to in the current system. And I think, you know, I charged a $60 consult for that patient to be able to provide that level of care. So I think it's rethinking like what patients are willing to pay for uh, and they're willing to pay for better care. And I think that there's a lot that goes into that but you know, once we get paid for the care that we provide, that's whenever we're able to justify our time to, to, to do that care. So I think there's a lot that goes into that, but I think that it's possible, whether insured or uninsured, for that level of care to exist.
1: Yeah, and there's multiple ways you can make that payment bottle work with or without insurance. It could be a percent of or something like that. Or it could be a standard flat rate. Um, either way, I think that exactly what you hit on is the way it should be so that we can actually, like you said, care for people like that's just like that's what we do that's what we're paid to do that's what we're trained to do that's what we should be doing so th- that's a great example and that kind of warms my heart that you were able to do that and that the person was so appreciative that the other pharmacist came down and gave you the professional courtesy to say i want to check this out because you're apparently amazing so that's awesome
0: uh yeah i was shocked i <laughs> like that means well, that means of the, the patient like thank you like i don't know it was just like next level i, I didn't know how to react to really.
1: That's just awesome. I don't even know how else to describe that. But yeah. before I let you go on this podcast, there's two questions I ask anybody, ask everybody who comes on here. We're gonna have to make it a little bit short. If you could change one thing about pharmacy that isn't a law, what would it be?
0: Yeah, I'd probably just come back to like the whole idea of breaking apart the brand and generic market. I think that would go a long yeah. way.
1: Okay. We've hit on that one pretty extensively, so we'll move on to the second question yeah. quickly. But uh, this one I think is a little more interesting. If you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why?
0: I don't know that I have a lot of issues with. I mean, obviously, I, I dislike PBMs and wish there was regulation around them. It probably wouldn't be so. I would just probably shoot for better antitrust. So. We cross multiple sectors with that, so I, I hate Amazon as well. <laughs> I you no, know, as much as I hate PBMs and, and like the the Caremark. Getting into pharmacy world, I think that there's a lot of uh, monopoly-like action going on right now, that is kind of should be antitrust um, law le- legislation. Uh, so I think probably something along those lines, and not so much. I, I'm not so harsh on pharmacy itself because I think it's much larger than that. Because I think that once, like, you know, going back to, like, generic brand, I think, you know, there's so much that can happen in that world uh, where regardless of who's paying for it directly, I think that it just opens up a ton of opportunity for pharmacists. um, Where if you can open up a pharmacy, if you can come out of school and open up a pharmacy, the um, inventory in my pharmacy is, right around $6,000. If you can open up your own pharmacy and care for a community and provide 90% of medication to a community and, you know, get paid for the care that you provide, I think that that is pretty exciting for, you know, future pharmacists. And I think that from a patient perspective, especially with pharmacy deserts, with just the big box pharmacies, not necessarily providing the ideal level of care, I think that that's exciting for patients too, to, to have, you know, pharmacies come back into their community to get higher levels of care, to get reduced costs of medications. So I don't necessarily have an issue with laws as they exist. I just think that, you know, rethinking of how we think about costs and, and the way we think about insurance in general um, is also, is probably more important.
1: Yeah. And antitrust ties in there given that some of them are top down the way they're whole, all completely integrated from, pharmacy to insurer to pbm to everything so i think that's that definitely is where a lot of laws are targeting right now across the u.s so i think that's a good one to good one to point out so hey kyle thanks again for coming on the podcast again everyone blueberry pharmacy is the name of it if you google it you'll find it he's been all across social media whether it be linkedin facebook anything i think i follow him on every single one so you can find him he's out there and hopefully you guys can uh support what he's doing with that so kyle thanks again for coming on the podcast
0: certainly thank you eric a uh, lot of fun i appreciate it
1: and as always listeners thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast your prescription for pharmacy and politics